The human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine, and we will learn to utilize each of them to the maximum and learn to make decisions about what we want and how we want to feel. What a concept! And one we will explore today on the Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. On our program, we'll address who you are, why you're here on this planet, how to go within, how to come to know what you believe, and why. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon, broadcasting as usual from sunny Arizona, and we're having, oh, I hate to sound boring, but one of those perfect days that we have here, and it's supposed to warm up almost to the 90s, I hear. And if it keeps doing that, we'll be able to put our feet in the swimming pool very soon. And we're all looking forward to that. The first toe in the pool is an event here in Scottsdale. Today, we're going to be talking about old people. Yep. Lessons for Living from the Wisest Americans is our title. You know, in our culture, we seem to have lost respect for the older generation, our senior citizens. They're sometimes metaphorically put on the shelf and treated like useless antiques. We hear a lot of complaints about them, and most of these complaints involve the word slow. They drive too slow. We want them to get out of the way so we can get to work. They eat too slow. They walk too slow. They're just too slow. They eat early to get in on all the discounts for seniors and they leave small tips and go home with a doggy bag containing every morsel that was left on their plate and sometimes we're embarrassed by it. They just aren't with it. They don't get involved with the latest gadgets, the latest language, the fads. Some are hard of hearing and others are smart enough just to pretend they don't hear. I I like that one. Most of them don't live on Facebook and neither do they tweet. But there's a flip side. Our guest today calls them the wisest Americans and we're going to learn why. Our guest today, Dr. Carl Pillimer, is a professor of human development in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University and professor of gerontology and medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College. He is the founder and director of the Cornell Institute for Translational Research on Aging. An internationally renowned gerontologist, his research examines how people develop and change throughout their lives. He has authored five books and over a hundred scientific publications, and he speaks throughout the world on aging-related issues. You know, pay attention because we're all getting older on a day-by-day basis. After a chance encounter with a remarkable 90-year-old woman, he decided to find out what older people know about life that the rest of us don't know, and he asked more than a thousand older Americans their advice for living. He asked about all the big issues, love, marriage, children, work, happiness, avoiding regrets. This led to his book, 30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans. And you know I review a lot of books, and this is one of the nicest reads I've had in a very long time. It is such a privilege to welcome to the Self-Improvement Show, Dr. Carl Pillimer. Welcome, Carl. 
Well, it's so nice to be here with you, and thanks for that lovely introduction. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. It's very well-deserved. But let's start out by having you tell us about yourself. Who is Carl Pillimer? Uh, well, you know, I, I have been a gerontologist now for close to 30 years, which seems rather amazing. Um, but this is one of the few projects I've ever done where everybody always wants to know how old I am. Uh, and I'm 57, so born right in the center of the baby boom, uh, you know, sort of right in the middle of that uh, 20-year time period. And I divide my time between Cornell's Ithaca campus doing work in human development and our medical college, where I also am in uh, the division of geriatrics. And I'll share one last thing, and that's that, and it has to do with what we're going to talk about today. Um, a lot of my work over the course of my career have been more quantitative, uh, sort of regular empirical research, and a lot of it focused on the problems of older people. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, uh, conflict and abuse in families, uh, problems in quality of care. And when I turned, uh, you know, um, when I got to my early 50s, I began to really want to change in that approach and to look for more of the strengths and the resilience and the positive aspects of older people. So that was a midlife transition for me, and that's really what led into this project. Fantastic. Now tell us this. Most people shy away from dealing with older people. Uh, I, 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 some of the attitude is like, well, they're already over the hill. They've lived their life. Let's look at some of the people, help the people who still have it all ahead of them. So why did you get involved or interested in gerontology at a, at a young age? You know, it's a fascinating question. And, uh, you know, uh, um, one way maybe I might answer it is to call it a tale of two grandmothers. Um, I was very close to both of my grandmothers. Actually, my father died when I was very young. And my grandmother, who was at that point already in her 70s, uh, came to live with us, and she was a very inspiring character and a true model of successful aging. Uh, really was healthy. Uh, oh, she lived to be 93, and she was healthy until about 92.8 years. Had a very sort of a quick illness and was a wonderful, inspiring person. And my father's mother was very different. She was very negative about aging, had difficulty adapting. And I kind of think looking at those two examples got me interested by the time I was in college in looking at aging. Um, and then when I got to graduate school and my Ph.D. program, I was attracted to gerontology because it wasn't one of those areas where everything was already known and people were taking little bits of topics. Mm. It was really a wide-open area where almost anything you did was, you know, interesting. Uh, and now, as I'm sure you know and probably your listeners know, um, we're on the verge of an absolute explosion in the older population, uh, yes. a demographic shift, you know, that no society's ever known before. So really, it's a brave new world for aging, and that makes it even more interesting right now. A wide open field is right. Um, and I, you know, I don't, the, the question comes to mind, are you really glad that this is what you did? Have you found fulfillment in this study and in this area of care? Uh, yes, I found it to be really useful. I would say, too, you know, and I think um, I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to say it, um, during my career as a gerontologist, uh, the field changed in a very good way. 
um, namely that people st- have started to look at uh, the life course. So we often now say aging in the life course. Uh, and what a lot of people are moving towards is not just seeing old age as this one compartment of time, uh, but instead starting to look at how the choices and decisions and opportunities we have as young people um, then go on to shape our whole life courses and lead us to where we get in our 70s and 80s and beyond. So it's nice because instead of just studying older people, we're starting to look at the pathways and trajectories towards successful aging, really taking this long view of life. So I think, uh, you know, I'm glad about it, but I'm also glad because now some things I do maybe look at more middle-aged adults or at what happened to people as children that lead to their later life outcomes. So we're trying to take a more holistic view, and that's really been fascinating. Yeah, well, no, no, I wouldn't have yeah. chosen any other career. It's really fantastic. And it's that shows in your book, you know. So let's get to that. You know, tell us, uh, tell us about this ninety-year-old lady who got you interested in this study, and then let's talk a little bit about the study. Uh, I want sure. to hear about this lady. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, it gets back to what I was saying. Uh, you know that I'd been thinking about this idea, and let me give a tiny bit of background. Uh, you know, namely, I was getting this kind of concern that I was focused too much on the problems of older people, you know, because that's how our society treats them, too, as sick and frail, and now they're busting our federal budget. So our views in society are negative, and I think academics reinforce that. Um, And at the same time, I was meeting these really impressive older people and reading research about positive and resilient aging. So I was in a stage where I was mulling around a project like this, And I do a lot of research in nursing homes. Um, And I went to one, and a nurse came up and said, look, I know you're interested in in sort of interesting and unusual older people, which I am. And so she took me into a room um, of a person I call June Driscoll in the book. They're all pseudonyms in the book. And, you know, just walking in the room, June Driscoll, appeared like any other very impaired nursing home resident you might ever see for folks who've been in nursing homes. And I said to myself, you know, I wonder why, you know, I'm here. And we sat down, and I knew already that June was very impaired. She was nearly blind. She was almost a total care nursing home resident. And I said, you know, so I walked over, and the nurse said, how are you doing? And June kind of bellowed out in this cheerful voice, oh, I'm just fine. Life is just, you know, really things are great. I've had my bath. I'm getting ready for lunch. And she immediately segued into asking the nurse about her own family. And so I sat down and we talked, and here was this, you know, very disabled, very old, but cheerful, positive person. And I think it was something in the moment where I just sort of blurted out something about, you know, how could it be this way? Uh, and she metaphorically grabbed me by the lapels and said, young man, which it was nice at 52 or 53 to be called young man. <laughs> yeah. uh, she said, you know, you've got to learn that, there's a, that a point arrives in your life where you have to take responsibility for your own happiness. It's my job, no matter what's going on, to be as happy as I can possibly be in this situation. Um, and she also went on to say that her life had been extremely hard And in some ways, living in a nursing home was even better than she'd had before. So she really said, again, as I was leaving, you have to learn to take responsibility for your own happiness at some point in your life. And I couldn't get 
her and that image out of my mind. And it led me to this project of really trying to find out what older people know that younger people don't about living happier, healthier, and more successful lives. Now, that's a really interesting point because everybody doesn't have that attitude regardless of their age. So along in your study, you must have come across people who don't share those same thoughts on positivity. And I'm thinking of the positive psychologist would love her. <laughs> exactly. You know, did, did you do weeding out? Did you try to just get to those people who were positive? You know, or... that is a, that's an extremely good question. And it's an important point uh, that, I like to, that I like to make about this book and about uh, the Cornell Legacy Project that it's based on. We didn't select people because they were particularly happy or successful or well-adjusted. And as, as folks will see if they read the book, quite a few of the lessons come from people who felt like they hadn't done things right, who felt like they'd made bad decisions and are giving advice to younger people not to do what they did. So in lessons about, say, choosing a career, for example, I have people who weren't happy with their career choice and who actually were a little depressed and unhappy about how things had turned out. So I want to say that, that it's not a book about successful aging by people who succeeded. It, it really was a wide net of people, uh, some of whom were quite positive and some of whom actually had a lot of regrets. However, I will say that um, one thing research has shown us is that older people are, in general, happier than younger people. Um, so studies which ask the whole population the same questions, like how happy are you now on a scale of 1 to 10, um, would you rank the last five years as among the best years of your life? People 75 and older tend to be happier than younger people and to report oh. higher well-being. So, yeah, on the whole, they were at least somewhat positive because that seems to be what old people are like. That's a wonderful finding. It's time for us to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk more about how you did this study. Okay? Sure. Look forward to it. This is Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show with my guest, Dr. Carl Pillimer, saying stay tuned. We'll have more when we come back. Find out what's happening on the World Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at World Talk Radio. Are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding? What about your business? We've got a program that will help streamline your image management. Tune in to Marketing Matters, hosted by Yasmeen Anderson-Smith. Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. 
show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Carl Pillimer. He's a gerontologist, world-renowned, and we're talking about his book, uh, 30 Lessons for Living uh, from the Wisest Americans, is, is who he interviewed. He did a study that um, had a span of five years. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I think we've pretty well covered why you did this study. Um, but how did you go about uh, deciding what you wanted to ask? How many people helped you with it? Just tell us in general how this study went. Sure, and let me say it was one of the most enjoyable professional experiences I've ever had. It was really fantastic, um, and, and especially because at various points I was able to involve young people in doing some of the interviews who found it really very positive. Uh, in brief, there are three interlocking studies I did as part of the Legacy Project. Um, uh, the first one was when I began to think about doing this project. Like all good social scientists, I went and looked at the published literature, and to my surprise, there were no published articles on this topic. Now, of You're course, kidding. No, of, <laughs> but, um, of course there were studies of elder wisdom in some kind of general Yoda-like way, but in terms of actually asking large numbers of older people about their practical advice for living, like so what would they suggest uh, if asked about advice to a young person for marriage or for career or child-rearing, no one had ever asked old people these questions in this way. So uh, well, the first thing I did was a pilot study in which we surveyed alumni of some universities, um, folks in senior centers, really a convenience sample, but of over 600 people. Oh, that's um, and a pretty they, big sample. Well, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's a pretty big sample for a pilot. That's, you know... Well, absolutely, just for starters. And so we got, you know, pages long from a lot of people. Um, Then, like a good social scientist, I wanted a nationally representative sample. Uh, And so we paid for a truly nationally, uh, um, um, a national random sample survey um, uh, where you could be sitting in your living room and a person from Cornell's Institute for Survey Research would call you and start to ask you about the most important lessons you've learned in the course of your life. Um, I will say that one person said, uh, you know, I'll tell you my most important lesson, and that's not to answer surveys on the telephone. <laughs> but, uh, but as you may know, a wonderful thing about being a gerontologist is older people are typically more likely to say yes to surveys. 
Yeah, because uh, they're lonely, want to talk to somebody. And, and they're polite, you know? Yes. So um, that got us uh, a very diverse sample, ethnically, racially, economically. Um, and the final uh, um, segment, or the final study, were in-depth, around two hours each, um, interviews with people from all over the country who were nominated by somebody who said, you know, here's somebody who would have good life lessons. And those were in-depth interviews, uh, and all of these, you know, were, were transcribed and coded. Uh, so overall, we interviewed or collected data in some way from over 1,200 people. Uh, uh, the final thing I'll say um, is we did that because we didn't want it to be a small anecdotal study. We wanted to be able to draw some conclusions um, about what people 70 and beyond would um, give as their main lessons for living. Um, and that's why we did this large and representative sample, which actually makes it different from most other books on aging. Now, the thing that boggles my mind when I think of this study is how did you ever analyze those mounds of data? Great question. And the one thing which we did, and I have an appendix in the back of the book, um, which talks about how this is like and unlike a standard social science study. And it's like a standard social science study uh, in how we collected the data. But in terms of analyzing it, it was primarily qualitative and narrative. Um, so we did loose coding of the responses, but honestly, a lot of the book is me having read through thousands of pages of transcripts and interacting with the material and actually much more than I would in a standard social science study. I bring myself in and my own interpretation and experiences collecting it. So the 30 lessons, you know, really do represent on the whole the major points, but it's not like there were a certain number of votes for each lesson or that sort of thing. Right. Um, um, it really was me spending years combing through these data like an anthropologist might. And finding strands or themes, I assume. Right. And we also did, though, do some coding using student assistance and that sort of thing. And so sometimes in the book people will see one of the most you know, often offered lessons was, and that's the result of that kind of coding. Well, it's fascinating, Reed. What of the findings as you look back now, surprised you the most? What didn't you expect at all? That's, you know, um, there are a couple of ones, and I want to say as background, my major fear in doing this study was that it would just be a bunch of cliches. You know, live life to the fullest or be healthy. And in each of the lessons, I found something a little surprising and counterintuitive. Um, well, let me touch on one, you know, that may be of greatest interest to your younger listeners, but I think is appropriate for almost everybody. Um, when it came to work and career, um, we asked these 1,200 older people, um, as you look back, on, uh, so if a younger person came to you and said, how can I have a happy and successful career, what would you recommend to that person? And I thought that this group, the Depression-era generation, um, would say to me, go out and get the highest paying job you can, earn as much money as you can, be safe and be secure because the financial world is a dangerous place. Instead, they said the opposite. 
And this was one of the most commonly repeated lessons. Almost everybody said, choose work for its intrinsic value, its intrinsic rewards, its sense of purpose, how much joy it brings you, um, and make money third, fourth, or fifth. So really do work that gives you a sense of purpose. And it's interesting. Um, it took me a long time to realize why, but I think I discovered why this counterintuitive lesson was so strong for them. And why? Well, uh, um, there are two things. Uh, the first is uh, that this is a group who grew up in the Depression and, one, had really terrible jobs for part of their lives often. And their really bad jobs make our really bad jobs look like good jobs. Yes. Uh, um, so by really bad jobs, in Texas there were dirt farmers. In New York there were shoeshine boys. So, uh, so they know bad jobs and how soul-killing they are. But they also learned to live on a lot less. In the Great Depression, they learned that you could actually be happy living on a lot less than you think you can. So I think it's those two things that came out of it. But I'll tell you the most important one, and this is the other lesson I would highlight in a short period of time, and it relates to the work question. Uh, You know, there was one lesson uh, that people uh, were most likely to preface it with if there's one thing I want you to tell young people, or if there's one thing I want you to put in your book, it's these three words. Life is short. Ah. So over and over, especially people in their 90s and 100 plus said, life goes by incredibly quickly. Life goes by in a second, or as one 90-year-old said, in a nanosecond. So, uh, uh, so when you're at the end of life, the one thing that seems most precious to you is time. You know, and, if, and you want back time you spent doing things, you know, that weren't enjoyable. Um, if there's any do-over that people would like, it's not having spent five or ten years in a really, you know, mindless, unpleasant, unhappy job. Um, now, the last thing I'll say is they understand, you know, that you may be stuck in a job like that uh, if you have no choice. But they say, don't give up. Work to get out of it because the amount of lifetime you spend on the job is so much of your life that if you aren't glad to get up in the morning, you really should look for something else, even if it pays a lot less. Oh, that was a long-winded, that was a long-winded answer to one thing that really did surprise me, how adamant they were about choosing work for the joy it provides and not for the money. Yeah, and I thought that was an incredibly important chapter of the book for young people to read. You know, every college... Every college student should read that before they finish school. Every high school senior should read that before they start college. Because well, well, it, well, and if I can put in a plug, I do think this might make a good uh, you know, graduation gift um, ah. um, for that reason. Because I, um, you know, um, just along those lines, you know, I teach at a university. And now I cringe every time an undergraduate says to me, you know, I'd really like to be a chef, but I think I'd make more money doing X. Yes. And the answer is, don't do X. You know? While we're right here, tell us how people can reach you and how they can find your book. Absolutely. And the book's available in most bookstores, uh, 30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans. And you can find you can certainly find the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. And I would say, if you'd like more information about the project, the easiest way 
uh, is to Google or in any search engine, um, put in uh, the Cornell l- l- Legacy Project. Cornell Legacy Project. Um, it'll get you to our website to where we have uh, um, lots of videos of elders sharing their lessons, a lot more lessons than appear in the book, uh, and information on how to order the book. You can find it also, you can find a YouTube video that's very good. And, you know, you could even go to the self-improvement blog and order it there. Mm, oh, what a perfect. concept that Absolutely. is. They can go to your blog. <laughs> they can go to the, the blog. Um, I guess the question comes up, and I've read the book and I'm of age, so, you know, I totally understand this, but why should people care? Why should young people today care what us old folks say? We're yeah. not with it. You know, that, uh, I mean, really, you're hitting on all the great questions about this. Uh, you know, actually, one, um, as part of doing this book, as a late um, middle-aged academic, I've had some experiences which are unusual for me. Um, and one of those is I got invited to do a blog on the Huffington Post, um, oh. which I think actually my immediate family and at least one other person read, um, <laughs> because a guy wrote in and said, and said the following. He wrote to me and said, I'm a college professor. I learn a lot from my students, and I don't buy your premise um, that the oldest Americans are, are the wisest Americans or that we should listen to their lessons. And that really prompted me to try to answer, you know, kind of why I believe that was the case. And briefly, one of the reasons why I think we ought to listen to them is where they stand in the life course. You know, there's been lots of research showing uh, that older people, especially after 70, really do think about things differently. And they do so because they become really aware of having a limited time horizon. Um, as you get to your 70s and beyond, I mean, you know, you get a whiff in your 50s, but it's really people 70 and beyond know that their time horizon is limited. And interestingly, that doesn't depress them, but it helps them make better decisions. Um, they become more selective about relationships, about how they spend their time. Um, they become better at regulating their emotions. So there are things older people do that make them happier. I wanted to see if I could distill that and, and pass it on to younger people. Um, a second piece, though, is the extraordinary experiences they've been through. So even if you don't go to an old person for how to program the DVR, they really are the most credible experts we have on living well through hard times. And I'll tell you honestly, I began to ask myself, why when we're going through the second worst economic downturn in the last hundred years, why wouldn't we want to know the advice of people who went through the worst one? Exactly. You know, as we've been at war for 10 years, so why wouldn't we want to know how women held together their families during World War II and what kind of advice they have? You know, the fact that we aren't asking older people um, about this kind of thing actually began to seem to me so absurd. that. So I think they are the credible experts on some of these areas of life, and all we need to do is start to tap that resource in a better way. And with that thought, we're going to go to break. This is Irene Collin with my guest Carl Pillimer saying, stay tuned, we're going to be back with more interesting ideas from us old folks.
Find out what's happening on the World Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleiner interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness is delighted to finally have the opportunity to fulfill the requests of our many guests and listeners to extend the Mind, Brain, and Body experience to a second hour. Tune in for The Lyceum Critiques of Ancient and Modern Understanding with Dr. Michael Kell. The purpose of this show is to explore and expand upon mankind's continual efforts to explain why we exist. Join us each week as we continue our fireside chats with some of the most remarkable thinkers living today. The Lyceum airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Variety. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to The Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Carl Pillimer. We're talking about aging and the, the wisdom of the elderly. Um, wh- one of the things that some of us say now and then is, if I'd known I was going to get this old, I would have taken better care of myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, what insights other than this, and I'm sure you heard this from a lot of people, what insights do the elders have about successful old age what do you need to do as a younger person to age well sure and you know by the way that quotation is fascinating because it's attributed to two different people um if i'd known i'd lived this long i would have taken better of my care of myself um and one is ub blake who, uh, who lived to be a hundred and was very healthy um and one was mickey mantle who was very unhealthy and died early. So it's an interesting quotation, and, and um, nobody can decide who it's from. I thought that the elders' advice to young people for health, um, which, again, I was afraid would be a cliché, turned out to be among the most interesting. Um, and here's what they said. Uh, you know, their overall lesson to young people, or to people of any age, is fundamentally Live like you're going to need your body for 100 years because that's actually possible. And so the one thing they say, and I heard somebody say this yesterday, uh, 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 but they argue that what young people do is they justify their bad habits by saying something like this. Um, I don't care 
if I drink or if I smoke or if I'm a couch potato or if I don't exercise, I'm not worried about living longer. I mean, really, what difference does it make if I drop dead at 75 you know, or 80? I mean, once you're dead, you're dead, and I really enjoy this. Um, what the oldest Americans say is in your dreams you'll just drop dead. Um, actually, yeah. medical science has gotten very good at keeping you alive. What you're going to be in for is 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 or more years of debilitating chronic disease. Um, I use the example in the book of my sainted mother-in-law, to whom I was very close, who always made those excuses for smoking or drinking or um, not eating well. Uh, and she didn't just drop it. She had... 20 years of, inc- of an increasing burden of chronic disease. And it's chronic disease, you know, that we have to worry about, not simply, you know, I'll die in my sleep some night of a heart attack. And so they argue that young people need to think about needing their body for at least 90 and maybe 100 years and not, you know, have this comforting thought, I'll do what I want to at 30 and I'll just drop dead because that's a fool's, it, it's like a foolish way of looking at it. Uh, so I think a lot of younger people, uh, you know, have been struck by that viewpoint, and I hope maybe it's led to a little bit of behavior change. You know, I think of our diet and the kind of food we eat these days. Uh, it's almost difficult to get a balanced meal that's not full of chemicals. So I, I wonder about people coming of age a little later and what their bodies are going to be like when they're older. Well, you know what? Good, I mean, let me say, you know, there are some good things. I think, you know, that younger people have become more aware, uh, right, of the need for healthier food and that sort of thing. And on the positive side, it looks like with the boomers uh, that rates of disability may be dropping. Now, you know, the one wild card here is the obesity epidemic. But in terms of the boomers getting older, it looks like they're entering old age somewhat healthier and their trajectory may, you know, because, for example, people are much less likely to smoke. Uh, so I think, you know, we have maybe some health benefits of folks actually entering old age in the boomer generation in somewhat better shape, uh, you know, because people are starting to listen to health messages, I think. And it's about time. So, you know, we're talking about their health and aging with disabilities or chronic illness, well, we didn't on disabilities, that doesn't matter if we're, what age you are, you have those. Um, but you'd think that they would be walking around scared about dying all the time. Did you find this true? You know, it's so interesting because the social psychologists have finally discovered mortality. Um, and there's a whole school of thought in social psychology with the cheerful name Terror Management, uh, which argues that, you know, the thought of our own mortality is so potentially terrifying uh, that we develop all these defense measures and structures to deal with it. Well, in interviewing people 80, 90, and 100, I kept asking myself, where's the terror? People were very open about it, and we looked them right in the eye and asked them directly, because I was very interested in this. You know, like um, we would say, you've lived many more years in the past than you're likely to live in the future. Do you think about the end of life? Does it bother you? Um, And what they said over and over is that they're not particularly anxious about it, Uh, but they really believe in planning. And there was often discussion of planning for the journey, not leaving things behind for relatives. But in terms of panicky feelings about death or worrying about it, um, I'll give you one example. 
Um, I interviewed a very non-religious person. She was an urbane, 87-year-old New Yorker who'd been through psychoanalysis much of her life in this beautiful art-filled apartment on the Upper East Side. And um, she said to me, oh, you know that panicky feeling like where maybe you're feeling sick and you wake up in the middle of the night and your thoughts go all over the place and you start to think, how can it be that I won't be here? She said, you know, that's a 40-year-old's game or a 35-year-old's yeah. game. I just don't think about it. So I think people get comfortable with the idea as much as anyone can well, uh, and, you and, know. and feel okay about it and accept it, and they've seen a lot of people go through it. So there's much less terror in that age range. Well, and everybody does it. So it's something that you know you can do. You're going to have to. Um, it's coming. You well, know. and what people would say over and over, I heard this from many people, you know, I'm not, um, when it's time for me to go, I'll go. You know, I'll go willingly, but I don't want to go in pain. So yeah. it really endorses the whole hospice and palliative care. Like what the oldest Americans are anxious about uh, is a lot of pain at the end of life. Yes. But in terms of that existential worry, a lot of them felt, you know, at ease. I guess you'd characterize it as serenity. And as somebody, you know, who's a little Woody Allen-y and worries about these things, I found that to be an immensely comforting part of the book. And it really was true for almost everybody. You know, there was a sense of of it being time to move on to something else at the end of life, and they were pretty much ready for it. Yeah, it's kind of like next. There's a wonderful country song that's coming to mind. It's called. They say, Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. Yeah, you know, it, it is kind of where most of us you know, are. Very similar. Okay. I, um, I think I say in the book, I interviewed a 93-year-old nun who was lovely, and actually, unfortunately, I did learn that she has passed on. Uh, but she said that same thing. She said something like, you know, I tell the Lord I'm ready for him to take me, but, uh, you know, not now, if that's okay. Not yet. I got this going on. I yeah. Don't want to go. Why did you find that most of them, if any, what did they regret? Uh, that, you know, and of course, you know, um, we asked them that directly. So we asked, you know, um, what do you personally regret? Uh, and what do you think people your age tend to regret? And a couple of the things were really surprising. I thought they would say um, an affair, not achieving enough in life. Um, you know, some maybe a shady business deal. Two things came out. Um, one was, and this really surprised me, how many people said, I wish I hadn't worried so much. Um, mm-hmm. I wish I hadn't spent so much time needlessly, mindlessly worrying. And, and so I drilled into that with people and dug down. And what it really means for the oldest Americans is, let's say, like somebody would say to me, you know, before I had my first child, I worried for a year because nothing was happening. I wish now at 90 that I could have that year back. Yes. Uh, you know, because my worrying was absolutely no good. It had no positive outcome. I wish I had that year back that I kind of poisoned by worrying about it. And so that's a really important view. And they give tips in the book for how to avoid worrying. Of course, it's easier said than done. But I will say a lot of people who've read the book have found having a thousand older people say to you, when you reach 90 or 100, you're going to wish you had back all the time you wasted by worrying about things that never happened. Yeah. I, I think it's a powerful 
you know, image, and I think it's really affected a lot of people to try to push worry away. You know, oh, they endorse planning, but it really is this notion of worry. And the other thing they said uh, is, is, is everybody, even the people who traveled the most, um, said they wish they traveled more. And so their suggestion is for young people, you know, if you're deciding to buy a big screen TV or take a trip, they would say to take the trip. Uh, that you're going to wish you'd seen more of the world um, when you get to their age. So I would describe those two as regrets. Basically, the view from 80 and 90 and beyond is, um, if you're going to spend money, spend it on experiences and people rather than on things. Uh, you know, so if you're going to remodel your kitchen or take a cruise with your grandchildren, uh, you know, they say take the trip. Takes the cruise. Yeah, uh, you know, that it's really, um, you'll look back on these kinds of adventurous experiences in general to avoid regrets. And people can see this on our YouTube videos because some of the elders are extremely emphatic. Is they want people to live more adventurously, to take more risks. So, so people say things like, try something. Try something different. Don't be put in a box. Don't, don't be stuck. Uh, you know, um, as one woman says, you know, you regret what you didn't do more than what you did. Uh, don't waste your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you hear that again and again and again in the book and in the videos and in the lessons we have on the website. Live life, uh, you know, more, uh, what's the word, sort of live it larger or like don't, like allow yourself to be stuck in a box. And older women especially had that message for younger women, um, of whom they're very envious because of younger women's greater opportunities. Right. But, but the idea, you know, try something. I can't do it as emphatically as they say. So if folks go on the YouTube channel, you can hear older people really exhorting you to, you know, do <laughs> something different, do something unusual. Uh, and I think, you know, and people regret, I think, the things they didn't do more than they did. And on that note... I want our listeners to think about how they can live larger as we go to break. This is Irene Conlon with the Self-Improvement Show. My guest, Carl Pillimer, saying we'll be right back, so stay tuned for more. We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Hi, this is Rochelle and Jeff from Travel Hub Radio with another Travel Hub tip. You're late for your flight and there is a long line at the security checkpoint. What can you do as a traveler to improve time and efficiency and make your flight quickly? One idea is to take everything out of your pockets, such as sunglasses, cell phones, PDAs, pagers, and other metal and electronic objects. Put them in an easily accessible pocket on your carry-on luggage. If security asks you to display or operate these items, they're right there. Plus, you won't hold up the line when you have to do the walk. A metal belt buckle or a wristwatch is usually not a problem, but be aware of them and ready to remove them quickly if needed. Wear comfortable shoes that can be quickly slipped off and on if you are asked to remove them. Most of all, if the security personnel give you specific directions or ask you a question, don't argue. Just comply and cooperate. It's not personal. They're just doing their job. For traveling tips and much more, make sure you tune into Travel Hub Radio or listen to the show archives and podcast right here on World Talk Radio and at TravelHubRadio.com. 
the World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. You are tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Carl Pillimer. We're talking about aging and the wisdom of our elders. Um, Carl, you asked people, what are some of the most important lessons you feel you've learned over the course of your life? So I'm going to ask you this question. What are some of the most important lessons you've learned from this legacy project? Well, that's, uh, you know, I, I have thought about that. And let me share a couple uh, you know, for me as an incipiently aging person, so as I said, I'm in my <laughs> late 50s, and clearly one reason why I wanted to do this project you know, um, was to see how people dealt with aging. And, and I think uh, that some of their lessons for aging I found really helpful. Um, and in particular, they are generally very positive about aging. And indeed, one of the lessons is old age is better than you think it is. So I was oh, yes. struck by how many people said, uh, you know, uh, this being old thing, it, uh, you know, is a quest. It's an adventure. Um, one woman said, I'd tell people to find the magic. Uh, you know, it's not too late to seek a better world. They would quote Tennyson. So that, you know, that's one of the positive lessons I learned. And I'll say, honestly, it's made me much less anxious uh, about the next 20 or 30 years and they also say, you know, don't bother with the anti-aging stuff because you should just embrace it for what it is. Um, I think, you know, another thing they argue as you're getting older, you know, but throughout life, uh, is to learn to be social, even if you're an introvert. Uh, you know, learn to make the kinds of social connections uh, that you really need. It, you know, it doesn't mean you have to be the most popular person in the world, but as we get into middle age and beyond, especially men, you know, their social networks start to shrink. And so they really say, you know, be active and be out there and be forging new relationships all the time. Yeah, if you don't have any place else to go, find your senior citizen center. All kinds Which, of stuff goes on down there. Uh, you know, I interviewed a bunch of people from senior citizen centers, and they are great. You know what else they endorsed uh, was for some people moving into a senior community. Um, a lot of people found that to be a real solution to being isolated. So, you know, to really not give up, you know, to look for good opportunities, you know, socially and for social encounters. Uh, but I think that generally positive view of aging, coupled with this idea of staying connected, of really trying to figure out a way to stay connected, you know, has helped me think about my own aging and think about the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, and really see it as a much better space uh, than I think younger people, you know, feel it is. Oh, there's a lot of humor here. I remember my my father-in-law was the Hall of Fame umpire, Jock O'Conlon. Really? And when he hit his 80s, if something came along he didn't want to do or he just really said something outrageous, he'd say, I can say whatever I want to. I can do whatever I want to. I'm 80. 
Yeah, and that was the end of it. You didn't argue with that. (laughs) People often said, you know, well, aging, it beats the alternative, you know, that's a common. Yeah, it's that that kind of idea. Uh, We have just, we have a few minutes. Uh, There's a couple points I really want to hit on. I'd like to be able to discuss it more, but talk about the advice elders give for a happy marriage. I found that to be so delightful. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's really good advice, I think, because it's consonant, you know, um, with uh, uh, what research shows us. One is don't rush into marriage. And I've had some parents who told me they bought the book just to give that to one of their kids who they thought <laughs> yes. was rushing into marriage. And they say, perhaps a little surprisingly, opposites may attract, but they don't make good long-term marriages. And they say, choose somebody who shares your similar core values. So, as one woman told me, if you're a big spender, marry a big spender. It's fine to have some interests that differ, but you have to be right on the same page with core values. And they say for a long-term marriage, uh, really do try to marry your best friend, uh, that friendship is as important as love. Uh, And we hope that the passion continues, but sooner or later it dies down enough uh, that you want to be with somebody with whom you really feel a friendship to. As one person said, um, if you're choosing your mate, I'd say think about that person who you would have wanted to play on the playground with when you were six. Oh, I love that idea. You know, and I think that is very true. But they really argue, look for somebody who shares these deep core values because you're really going to have a lot of difficulty. The more different you are, uh, uh, the more challenges that, uh, that you're likely to have in your marriage. Uh, so I think those are two key things. Uh, you know, is birds of a feather probably are good and don't rush in. That uh, sounds like pretty good advice to me. We're getting really close to the end of the show. Um, can you just talk a l- very quickly about favorite children? Because this came up, and I thought that was extremely interesting. Right. So there, uh, what the elders want you to do. So, so let's imagine if some of you listeners out there are parents of young kids. What they want to remind you, is that the amount of time in this day and age that you spend with your child and they're at home with you under 18 is only about a third of what your lifetime of parenting is going to be. You're going to spend way more time with them as an adult child who you want to get along with and you want to be there with your whole life. And so they say take the long view of parenting. Um, And one of the things which the oldest Americans say in their experience poisons parent-child relationships is overt and demonstrative favoritism. Treating your children in the same family really differently. Even saying those kind of things like, you know, Betty's the smart one and Sally's the pretty one. Or kind of, why can't you be more like Jack? Oh, Uh, yeah. You know, they argue that this should be avoided. And let me tell you, people carry these memories of parental favoritism well into their 90s. And, they're and still they may be the ones that take care of you. Yeah. So, you know, um, um, they say that every parent probably does like a child more than another one. And they say, admit those feelings to yourself, but bury them deep. Uh, because those scars of overt, obvious parental favoritism, it really takes them a long time to get away, and people almost never forget them. And they say, too, Avoid whenever you can a permanent rift with your child. Because some of the unhappiest yes. people I interviewed, you know, had had that happen 
Uh, so they say build these good, strong relationships with your kids because uh, you're going to want them when you're 70, 80, 90, and beyond. And that's wonderful advice. Carl, what's the final thought you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Here's what it, you know, I think our society is fundamentally ageist, and it uh, keeps older people out of the mainstream and away from younger people. And one way we can overcome that is by asking older people not just for their stories, but also for their advice for living, as we can restore them to the role of sages. So at the end of the book are 10 questions to ask elders in your own life. You know, um, we in the Legacy Project hope these kind of discussions can go around every dinner table, like looking towards Easter or Passover. Have these conversations. Ask old people what they learned from their years on this world, and it'll be a very uh, enjoyable and fulfilling interaction, I promise. And go right now to Amazon or to my blog or to somewhere and get 30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans by Dr. Carl Pillimer. You'll be so glad you did. Next week's guest is Dr. Drew Ramsey, who will talk about the happiness diet, a nutritional prescription for a sharp brain, balanced mood, and lean, energized body. And this is a, <laughs> this is a great read. Don't be turned off because it's a diet book. Uh, Carl, thank you so much for being our guest today. I hope Everyone's learned a lot. I know I certainly have, and we appreciate you being with us. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, and I'm going to listen to that show next week. Cool. Good. Get the book. Happy to yes, Best of luck on your show. It was a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show, and my guest Carl Pillimer saying thank you for being with us, and we invite you to come again next week. Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here.